Well, this morning uh, we are continuing our series uh, entitled What Kind of Church? Uh, exploring God's design, God's blueprint for the church. Uh, answering the question, well, what kind of a church will make a difference, will transform our city? Uh, and therefore, what kind of a church is church central? What kind of church are we looking to build here. If you're around last week, uh, hopefully you'll remember, uh, we ended up by uh, giving a challenge, challenging you to try to move up a level in your commitment to the church. But you, you don't need me to tell you that simply pitching up here on a Sunday morning every week isn't actually going to make a whole lot of difference to our city. You know, one of the reasons we uh, meet in different sites uh, here in the west, but also up in the north of the city, down the south of the city, one of the reasons we do that is to try and multiply our impact on the city, trying to get closer to where people are, trying to make it a lot easier for new people to be added into the church. But just opening up new sites or just uh, opening up new venues isn't going to magically cause the church to grow. Now, I wish it was that simple. I mean, we'd open up a new one every week. Sadly, it isn't quite that easy. And so, it's all very well, kind of launching a site here in the west, uh, launching sites up in the north, meaning down uh, in the south. All very well, creating more room for growth and impact in the city, making more space for more people to come in. But if we don't do anything about it, we're actually putting in a whole lot of work for nothing. And so what I want to do this morning is try and spell out as clearly as I can how you can play your part to maximize what I believe is the potential opportunity we have staring us in the face right now. And to do this, I want to take you to a stunning passage in the New Testament, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, if you want to turn there, feel free. Uh, alternatively, the words will appear on the screen behind me uh, in a few moments. Just to give you a bit of the background, just to explain the context of this passage, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church in a place called Colossians, starts off by saying that Jesus Christ is fully God. Then he moves on to say that the whole world was created through Jesus. He then tells us that Jesus is now head of the church, before going on to spell out what Jesus' purpose is in all of this. And it's at this point we're going to pick it up. Colossians 1 verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel." This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
This is an incredible gospel passage. It presents us with Jesus, the reconciler. Through his death on the cross, Jesus has made a way for all things to be reconciled, brought together, restored to how they should be. This includes people. Jesus has made a way for relationship between us and him to be reconciled, to be restored, to be made right. That's only part of the picture. Jesus has also made a way for all things, for the whole of creation to be made right, to be reconciled, to be restored, to be brought back to how God has designed for it to be. Now, an important part of the purpose of any church, including us here today, part of our mission is to take this message that all things can be made new through Jesus and live it out. And so, really, all I want to do for the rest of my time today is unpack what this might look like for us. I want to start maybe with the easier bit. I want to start by talking about what this looks like with people, because I think we find this one slightly easier to understand. The Bible teaches that absolutely everyone is born a sinner. You may not be on a par with Hitler. In fact, looking around, I'm pretty confident none of you are quite on a par with Hitler, but that's not a comparison that God makes. He compares you to his own holy, perfect, pure standard. And Paul writes here that in our natural condition, all of us are in serious trouble. Verse 21, he says, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not that bad. But listen, it's not that you are better than others. The problem is that you are worse than the holy, the perfect standard of God. All of us are. And sin is so horrifically serious that God says, really, the only punishment it deserves is death. Spiritual death towards God in this life. It's like, God, are you there? Silence, no answer. We're dead to God. No new life of the Spirit of God pumping through our body. We're spiritually dead, and also we're eternally dead. We have coming a a, a living hell, a Christless eternity. That's what death means, alienation, separation from God. But if you and I choose to receive God's free gift of forgiveness, it's only possible because of the cross, we can be reconciled, we can be restored in relationship with God. God the Father says, where there is sin, there's got to be death. Jesus, his son, says, I will die in their place for their sin. Our sin gets laid on Jesus. He dies. And if we'll accept that by faith, we receive his gift of forgiveness. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are completely blotted out. 
The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, that is how far he has removed our transgressions or our sins from us. By faith, we say, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you are Lord, not just a good man, not merely a prophet. Now, I believe you are God. Thank you for forgiveness. I receive your forgiveness. Now sin's no longer in the way. I am reconciled. Relationship is restored, made right with God. The end result of this Paul says in verse 22, you get made holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. You might not always live right. You might not always live holy. But your status before God is holy because your sin, past, present, and future, has got laid, has got placed on Jesus. He died for it so we could be reconciled, made right with God. So we don't need to constantly be thinking, well, what happens if I mess up tomorrow? What happens if I, if I, I sin in the months to come? Jesus took it. He has already paid the penalty for our wrongdoing. That's motivation not to sin. That's motivation not to do wrong tomorrow. But even if we do, he took it. He paid the price. He took the penalty. I recently heard about a guy who broke down in his car. Breakdown company towed him to the nearest garage and they repaired his car for him. He couldn't afford to pay the bill and so he stuck it on his credit card. Not the wisest thing to do, I hasten to add. But when his credit card statement came through at the end of the month, there was absolutely no record of the transaction. And so, being an honest guy, he emailed the garage to to find out what exactly had happened. Got an email back the next day. Dear sir, we can find no record of your car breaking down and us repairing it. Therefore, there is no bill to pay. Do you know, God has no record of me ever breaking down, of you ever breaking down, if you have faith in Jesus. Well, we question it. I mean, that's just too good to be true. It it can't be right. He says, I've got no record of it. What I've got on record is that Jesus paid the price for your sin, and so there's no trace of you ever sinning. People get reconciled to God. But then there's this phrase, he reconciled to himself all things. What's that all about? Well, the Bible starts in Genesis with God making the whole world perfect. He looked at his creation and he said, this is good, that there was no sin no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no tears, no disappointment, no depression, no death. There were no fractured relationships between Adam and Eve and God or between one another. It was a perfect world. It was very, very good. But then in chapter 3, 
sin enters the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. It's something that's been happening every day since. People keep on disobeying God. I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Don't need to elaborate a whole lot on this. I mean, have a look around. People disobeying God the whole time. And the result of disobedience to God, of sin entering the world, is people in a mess and the world in a mess. People making dreadful decisions, causing untold hurt to themselves and to others. And the Bible teaches it's not just people, that the whole earth is bearing the brunt of all of this. Paul says, the whole of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. It's like creation remembers back to what it was like before sin ever entered the world. It is looking forward to the return of Christ when there'll be a brand new heaven and a new earth. It starts perfect in the Garden of Eden. It's going to end perfect in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And in the meantime, all creation groans natural disasters, all, all kinds of things but we just don't understand. But way back in Genesis 3, God hints at the fact that He's going to send His Son and He will take away the sin of the world, liberating people and all creation. And when Jesus came, He did just that. He modelled it with His own life. He preached forgiveness. He preached peace. He preached restoration to relationships. He healed the sick. He restored broken bodies. He began the renewal. He began the reconciliation, not just of people, but of all creation. He spoke to natural disasters that threatened to wreck lives. Be still! And they were. He modelled something of the future reconciliation of all things and of people. And the Bible says, Jesus will come again. Well, when we get to the final few chapters of the Bible, we get this picture of perfect reconciliation. God amongst his people. No pain, no suffering, no sin, no sickness, no tears, no death. All restored all brand new for all eternity. And so, I guess the question needs to be asked, well, as amazing as all of that sounds, what expectation of this should we have in the here and now? Well, obviously, we know it's possible for people to experience reconciliation with God right now, or else a lot of us wouldn't be here right now. But with that knowledge comes responsibility. Writing to the Corinthian church, Paul says, we have been reconciled to God and we have now been given the ministry of helping others get reconciled to God. It's like when Jesus said to his first followers, his first disciples, come, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. He's saying, if you will follow me, I will help you help others follow me. That's what Paul says. If you have been reconciled to God, you now get to work with God in His whole agenda of seeing people and 
all things get reconciled to him. I think we understand the people part of this. We know we're called to help our friends cross the line of faith. That being said, maybe some of you here today, you're still kind of grappling with this one. Still haven't quite made up your mind about Jesus. Just to let you in on a secret, we are here to help nudge you across the line. Be reconciled with God. Have your sin washed away. Be made new. However, I think most of us get that. But if we understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as simply God reconciling people to himself, as wonderful as that is, I think our Christianity is way smaller than it should be. It doesn't go right to the core of our being, because it kind of gets reduced to, as wonderful as this is, just helping others cross the line of faith. And we know that we're going to go to heaven when we die, and until then we're better placed to handle life's problems. All true, but the gospel is bigger than that. There isn't all things going on. What does that look like? What are we supposed to do about it? If you go back to the birth of the people of God, the original commissioning of the people of God in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, we we find God saying to Abraham, I will cause you to be the father of my people, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. I think we're getting a little clue here about the mandate of the church. Seen already how it's helping people get reconciled to God, but that happens within the larger picture, the, the bigger context of us blessing the peoples of the world. Who are the peoples of the world? Germans, Americans, Chinese, yeah? But let's break it down. For us, it's towns, cities, neighborhoods, communities. And specifically, I think it's parts, it's sectors, it's domains of society, the legal profession, industry, politics, health, education, the arts, God wants us to join with him in actually helping our society get healed, get mended, get put back together again. We'll only fully get healed at the end of time when Jesus returns. But between now and then, we're to bring in more of God's kingdom. We need to ask ourselves, how do I do that? as a mother, as a teacher, as a student, as an accountant, as a company director, as a salesperson, as an electrician, as a builder, as a musician, as a member of the police force, in the health service. What does it mean for me to be blessed so that I can be a blessing to the people around me. Because this was certainly the biblical pattern. I'll just think for a moment of some of the great biblical heroes. Where he referred to Abraham. What was he? A pastor, a preacher, an apostle, 
a church leader. No, he was a farmer, a landowner, and a businessman. Moses was an academic, a nomadic farmer, and an international leader. Joseph, farmer, servant, prison manager, politician. Ruth, widow, refugee, and housewife. Esther changed history by auditioning to be beauty queen. It's probably beyond a lot of people in the room right now, but that's up there as well, (laughs) moving swiftly on. Largely because there are lots of men in the room. (laughs) David, shepherd and musician. Isaiah, prophet, yes, but he worked in the king's court. Ezekiel, academic, shipbuilder, writer, international affairs. Nehemiah, wine taster, civil service governor, town planner, Obadiah, in charge of the palace, Paul, apostle, preacher, evangelist, but he's also a businessman. He made tents. Luke, he was a doctor. These men and women are peppered throughout Scripture, integral to the advance of God's kingdom, that they live for God every day of the week. If you said to them, but don't you want to be in full-time ministry? They'd say, we already are. You're thinking, but might Birmingham be changed by bigger churches and releasing more preachers, right? Wrong. We think that if we get a certain number of people in the church, maybe gathering here on a Sunday, then the city will be changed. It doesn't work like that. It works as 24-7, the other six days of the week, each one of us, as the church, engages. This week, uh, I've been away uh, at a two-day conference with other church leaders praying and fasting invariably chatting with other leaders there, they will ask how the church is going. Normally speaking, they're thinking of the numbers we get on a Sunday, or maybe the quality of our meetings. I'll tell you the question that really haunts me. How well are we doing at reconciling, restoring society? I think we're barely scratching the surface right now. Key question for me is, are we just going to be another church in Birmingham or are we going to be for the good of Birmingham? Would this city miss us if overnight Church Central just closed down? Because we're called to help reconcile, restore our city. Now please, don't hear me wrong. We want to see people reconciled to God. That's why we encourage you to invite your friends on a Sunday morning. That's why we put a lot of resources into our Alpha courses and Balti and Big Questions and Time for Tea, our work with senior citizens, our carol services. I'll tell you, we celebrate whenever anyone crosses the line of faith. But at the same time, We're about something way bigger than that. Again, people 
often ask me why we don't do more as a church in terms of social action projects. I try to explain that there's actually a limit to what we can do. Yeah, we run a toddler group one morning a week, have our work with senior citizens, recently set up a Christians Against Poverty Centre to help tackle the, the massive debt issues in our city. But in reality, there is only so much we can do. Uh, and if we go the route that everything has to be run centrally by the church, personally, I think that is way too restrictive. It is way too controlling. I, I believe everything should come through the church, but here's the deal. You are all the church. We, we cannot transform this city just with centralised organisation. That, that's too limiting, that's too small. You know, a big part of what we do when we gather together like this on a Sunday is get empowered for the other six days of the week, when the church gets scattered right across the city, making a difference potentially in schools, hospitals, shops, businesses, communities, streets. When you, when you came in this morning, you should have been given one of these pieces of paper. There's a quote on the top of it from a guy called Bob Roberts, who's uh, a Southern Baptist in the States. I was at a conference at the end of last year where he was the keynote speaker. He said, the Great Commission is not simply a command to recruit people into the Christian faith, but to engage and disciple every domain or every sector in such a way that the nation is transformed. Transformation and change won't happen with more preachers and churches but as ordinary believers engage in discipleship with the domains or the sectors, or the areas of society in which they have been placed. How do we actually do this? How do we do this gospel reconciliation the other six days of the week? Let me give you some suggestions. Number one, Consider everything you do as you doing it for God. Later on in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul addresses employers and employees. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, if you get this, it is profound. Paul says, whatever you do, you are doing it for the Lord. And he tells us that God will reward us in eternity for how we conduct ourselves in our secular work. In fact, there is no sacred secular divide going on here. Martin Luther was brilliant on this. This is how he put it way back in the 16th century. He said, the work of monks and priests, or maybe in our context, not any monks here as far as I'm aware, kind of church leaders and preachers, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one bit in the sight of God from the work of rustic laborers in the field 
or a woman going about her household tasks. A guy called William Perkins said this, the polishing of shoes is a sanctified and holy act. The action of a farmer performed with faith is a good work before God, as is the judge giving sentence, or a magistrate in ruling, and a minister in preaching. Or listen to William Wilberforce. He he was an MP in the 18th century. He was being pressurized by those closest to him to become a church leader, to devote all of his energy into preaching, because that's where the action is, right? Well, this is what he concluded. My walk is a public one. My business is in the world. I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which God has seemed to assign me. This is our calling. In fact, repeat after me. Don't do this quite often enough in the church here. Repeat after me. My walk is a public one. My business is in the world. I must mix in the assemblies of men and women. Or quit the post which God has seemed to assign me. This is our calling. View what you do as being for God. And then look for ways to affect all things through your work. What might that look like? A few examples. Do it excellently. Do it well because you're doing it for Jesus. Society works best when people work excellently. Serve others. Employers, if you carry any responsibility leading others in your workplace, invest in your employees. Invest in your team. Invest in their development. Help them be all they can be. Be helpful to those you work with. If someone needs to stay late to lock up, volunteer to be the one. Don't gossip. Be upbeat. Don't be the one who's always moaning and grumbling and complaining. Serve others directly and indirectly through your work. In fact, serve society as a whole. You you know, work in and of itself is a holy endeavour. Work was invented before sin ever came into the world. Work is a gift to us. It gives us dignity. It gives us purpose. It's, it's pleasing to God and in and of itself is a holy thing. But there's also a sense in which through it we are serving society. You might be sitting there thinking, well, all I do is stack shelves in Tesco. All I do is drive a bin lorry. All I do is work for the highways agency. I mean, how's that helping? Just imagine if we all stopped working. I mean, this last week, the teachers strike for a day. Chaos as all the kids were kind of let loose across the city. Imagine if everyone stopped working just for a day. What would we eat? What would happen to the kind of mountains of rubbish that would pile up in the streets? How do we travel anywhere? God wants you to start seeing the bigger picture wants you to believe that what you do matters. 
View your work as serving society as a whole and act with integrity. Be honest. Be fair. Be just. Be ethical. Listen, personally, I'm very limited in what I can do. In part, my role is to try to lift your heads to help you see spiritually the bigger picture. My role is to try and equip and encourage and strengthen, motivate you to do a lot of the things that I could never do. I mean, if I had practical skills, I I could do a good, honest job for people and not rip them off. This city needs many more tradespeople who don't exploit the weak and the vulnerable. If I was a teacher, I could be a positive influence on hundreds, maybe over my career, thousands of children. Maybe I could aim for a management position, have more of a say in how things are taught. If I had the brain to do a master's or a PhD, I could start writing articles and books that shape the way people think at a very high level. Eventually, it kind of filters down through society. If I was a local councillor or a politician... I could be a voice for righteousness and justice. If I was a doctor, I could help treat the whole person. If I was a lawyer, I could start giving a voice to the voiceless. If I was a journalist, I could start writing articles that challenge some of the assumptions of society. If I was an author or a film director or a musician... Some of this is I'm never going to be. But if I was, I could produce stuff that shows the shallowness and futility of the idols that people are living for. But I don't have those skills. Those opportunities aren't open to me. But that's not the case for you. You see, the potential, even in this room right now, is massive. Is as you use the different gifts and skills that that God has given you out there in the world, looking to use them to further His agenda, to impact all of things with the gospel, we begin to see this city changed, this city transformed. I'll tell you, you doing what you are gifted to do out there will have way more impact than if you all just kind of pack it in with your jobs and become preachers or church leaders. That would be an absolute tragedy. Consider everything you do as you doing it for God. Number two, continually explore what your gifts and skills actually are. You might be listening to all of this and be slightly confused about what role you could have in all of this. Should we, I've already referred to the handout you were given when you came in. It's designed to help you just start thinking about this some more, trying to get to the bottom what your gifts, what your skills actually are. It evolves over time. It's an ongoing process. I think we all need to regularly ask these questions because things change. We develop, we mature. But what am I good at? What are the things I can do without too much thought or effort and I do them well? What do other people say I'm good at? Then ask, what are my passions? What do I throb with? What do I dream about? What, what can I give my life for? Where do all of these things intersect? 
why don't you set aside some time over the next few weeks? Work through these questions. Ask God to reveal more of what He's got for you. Not just one day a week on a Sunday, but the other six days of the week. You're getting the message. The church is made up of people. This is each of us plays our part that the mission of the church is accomplished. God has given each of us unique gifts and skills to not only be a blessing to the church, but to be a blessing through the church to the city where He's placed us. Guess what I've been trying to do this morning is broaden your perspective so, so you grasp the call to see the whole of creation restored, reconciled, how it's meant to be. I want to finish by focusing back in on the need to introduce the people around us to Jesus. Jesus came to reconcile to himself all things, and that certainly includes people. And so the third thing we can do to live out this ministry of reconciliation is invest and invite. Invest in friendships with people outside the church. And then when time's right, invite them to an environment where they're going to encounter Jesus for themselves. Our interest life groups, different ones each term, are a stepping stone towards that. That they're a context where your friends can meet others from the church around a shared interest. Might be cooking or badminton, might be football or cycling. It's just an easy way to start introducing your friends to the idea that actually the church is all right. Our parenting and marriage courses, great first step towards the church, great for people in the church to do as well. We've got Alpha starting in the city centre a week tomorrow, Balti and Big Question starting in Selly Oak a week on Tuesday. And in December, there'll be not one, not two, not three, not four, there will be a whopping five carol services across our sites to choose from. Different times, different days, different venues. No excuse for any of your friends not to come. If they can't come to one, there'll be another four to choose from. And over and above all of that, every time we gather here on a Sunday, you might not have thought about it this way, but it's actually a great opportunity to get your friends along and see them exposed to the presence of Jesus. So last time, didn't we, how the church is God's temple. It's the place He's chosen to be seen most vividly, most tangibly, most powerfully. I tell you, this is as good as it gets until Jesus returns. As a church, we're wanting to partner with you to make it easier for you to invite your friends along. Wherever they're at, we want there to be something relevant to invite them along to. I want to create as many environments as possible to draw people closer to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, God has entrusted each one of us with this ministry of reconciliation. And there are specific individuals in this city that you are best placed to reach. And so you'll see right at the bottom of the handout, there's room for you to write in the names of people that you want to intentionally invest in. We've given you room to write four names. You can turn it over and there's a whole blank piece on the back. Just, just keep going. Just, just write in. Names of people you want to intentionally invest in. Then alongside that, think about what you can invite them to. Just invite your friends to come and see. You, you might not know all the answers to their questions, 
just invite them along to a place where they can meet Jesus for themselves. You know, I think we all probably could do with getting a little more intentional about this. I want to encourage you to get more intentional about this. I want you to see the church as so much more than a meeting you attend once a week as and when it's convenient. We're the people of God on a mission, chosen by him to be a blessing to the people around us.